welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. In this episode, we're continuing our Getting Started series with a discussion on some key factors that can support the long-term success of your collaborative. So if you've been wondering about the mindset shifts needed to push your collective impact effort forward, we hope you listen in. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us here at the Collective Impact Forum podcast. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Community and Program Associate Director at the Collective Impact Forum, and I am in discussion today with my Collective Impact Forum teammates. Today, we are going into the topic around key factors for success. So in our last two discussions, we looked at what is collective impact, what are the five conditions, and also in the last discussion, we went into around uh, readiness factors and How does one know if the collective impact approach is the one to take for your collaborative work and what are the different factors to get ready to launch? And today we're looking at the point of, okay, you're ready. You want to go with collective impact. Your collaborative is ready to start. Are there any key things to think about in order to help support your success? And that's what we're going to go into today. So for today's discussion, we are talking with executive director of the Collective Impact Forum, Jennifer Splansky-Juster and Director of Programs at the Collective Impact Forum, Robert Albright. Jen, Robert, so happy to talk with you all today. Good to be on with you, Tracy and Robert. Hi there. Before we dive into the meat of the episode, which is on those key factors for success, which is everyone is always so excited to hear about, and heads up, we're also going to talk about pitfalls to avoid. I just want to quickly ask, how did we devise these key factors for success? How did this come about? Good question, Tracy. So... The content that Robert and I are going to be talking about today comes from, gosh, a range of different sources. So first and foremost, I think as in our role at the Collective Impact Forum, we are really constantly in conversation with people doing collective impact work across the field. And that happens through the coaching and consulting work that we do and our colleagues and partners at FSG and Aspen and other organizations do. It comes through our surveys of you all, our members and others in the field. It comes through what we hear about and see and lift up at our convenings. And so there are just a lot of different sources for what I would say is our sensing and our learning in partnership with people really doing this work in the field. Um, And so that is what I think of as the source. These do not come from an academic study, but are really based on the practice of putting collective impact into place and the observations that we have made and really synthesized into what we'll share today. The other thing I just would say as a precursor to today's session is that uh, we're, we're talking about success factors and pitfalls. These all build on Uh, what we talked about in our first two episodes. So these are really, uh, I guess, above and beyond putting in place the five conditions of collective impact and really living into the principles of practice like equity and engaging community. So these are um, additive to those and considerations once those core components are understood and in place. So it sounds like a lot of this, what we're going to talk about is all things that have bubbled up from those in the field and we're sharing those recommendations out to the listeners today. Uh, So let's kick it off. So what are some of those key factors for success that we really want to shine a light on? Sure. So I'll give you four what we call mindset shifts. And these are shifts in how people who are engaging in collective impact work 
them show up and approach the work and the planning and implementation process. And this is not only for those who are playing the backbone, but also for the leaders who are participating um, from community members, from other organizations that are sitting on steering committees and work groups and other ways that they're engaged in these partnerships. So I'll name four and then we can dive into them. So the first one is focusing on uh, shifting from a focus on evidence to focusing on evidence and relationships. The second is focusing on content expertise as your main source of information to focusing around both content and context expertise. Expertise from people who have the lived experience and context um, that the initiative is working on. Third is shifting from credit being hoarded to seeing credit as a shared currency. And then the fourth is shifting from thinking about the work of individual programs to thinking about population level outcomes. What is this initiative going to achieve at the population level? So let's dive into each one, maybe go into a little bit more detail. And if you have any examples to share, I think that'll be really helping in grounding this information. So the first one is around evidence. Evidence is the prior mindset. And then we want to shift that to evidence and relationships. And when we say evidence, is that really, are we talking about data? Or are we talking about what other forms of evidence are we thinking about? And what kind of relationships are we looking to take on? Yeah, so let's, let's definitely dive into this one. So when we talk about shifting from a focus on evidence to focus on evidence and relationships, what we really wanna talk about here is how the group is spending its time together. So uh, yes, when a group, is, this is, I would say primarily at least up front in the planning stage, although always important, when a group is together, often groups say, okay, we're gonna come together and define our common agenda and make our strategic plan and let's look at the evidence and the data and understand what we need to do and we'll make a plan and we'll go for it. And people don't make time in those early days for simultaneously building relationships with others that are coming together in partnership in the collaborative. And so what we really wanna mention here is building in time both to look at the evidence and look at the data and understand uh, the context and the problem and the, some of the root causes that are contributing to the current situation. Of course, that's incredibly important. And we also need to build time for building relationships with each other um, amongst people that are in the room. And Jen, I would just add that that relationships point, sometimes I find that collaboratives tend to go straight to the let's let's implement some evidence-based programs or some best practices. Let's identify a couple projects that we can work on, which is a helpful thing to, to identify traction and see some movement. But I would just underscore what you said. I'm, I'm thinking about a, a literacy collaborative that I had some conversations with in Illinois that had this really good cross-sector mix of people around the table. There were leaders of nonprofits that were providing mentoring to kids after school. There was there were leaders of school, the school district. There were teachers. They had some grassroots community leaders there. But instead of jumping right into what are the things that we can do to help kids read by third grade, they spent some thoughtful time building relationships and trust among the partners around the table, which might mean that you don't get right to the strategies right out of the gates, but that's okay because it's important to build that, that currency of, of trust. The next one that you had mentioned was around 
moving from a mindset that was primarily focused on content expertise and then shifting that to a mix of content expertise and context expertise. Can we share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So when we talk about content expertise, we are talking about uh, people who are typically turned to as experts. Uh, I'm using air quotes to say expert on a topic. So that could be folks from academia, consultants, quote, thought leaders, and others who are looked at as the experts in the field. And for sure, their input is important and folks have gained these levels of expertise through really rigorous work throughout their career. And in addition to that, I think it's really helpful to think about also lifting up context expertise. And that is the expertise of people with lived experience on the topic that we are talking about. So if this is an initiative that is focused on food security, making sure that folks that are engaged uh, include uh, as as a source of uh, participant in the initiative and a source of data and information, people who've experienced food insecurity would be context experts and bring equally, really equally, if not more important, stories and information about their experience that can contribute to a deeper understanding of how the collaborative can address the topic. So thinking not only about content, but also context expertise and looking to marry both of those and how you set the direction for the initiative. Another example that comes to mind on this front is a workforce development collaborative in Ohio that was exciting for me to, to work with because I've my my roots personally and my career started in economic development in North Carolina, but I saw a lot of parallels in both communities where you had really well-intentioned professionals, people who are working in economic development. So they work for economic development agencies or they work for foundations or they provided job training programs and resources for people who might've been displaced from working in more of a manufacturing type job, but now we're trying to reskill or uh, build new skills around more service and knowledge industry jobs. And in that collaborative, they had a lot of the, as Jen described, content experts. They actually did not have a lot of the voice of the residents, the, the people in the community who had actually experienced unemployment for long stretches and had really helpful feedback that they could share about how there was not a lot of alignment between the job training that was available and what was needed or some of the other barriers that they faced that the collaborative really needed to address. So that was one that comes to mind in a different issue. I know we've, we've focused on several examples in education in these conversations, but that's a, an, one on the workforce development side that comes to mind. That's so interesting. I can see how that can be a key for success to really to share leadership among content and context expertise. And I also can see that as a good way to combat stigma since for many people who are quote unquote context experts may have experienced things that are often stigmatized. And that's another reason why they aren't included at the table. So for those that have experienced food insecurity or those that have experienced or are currently experiencing homelessness or those that have experienced or are in recovery for addiction and how important it is to have their voices included when we're moving towards these big long-term shifts and changes. Yeah, Tracy, if I could just add to that, we've talked in previous episodes and we'll talk in future episodes about what real community engagement is and means. 
And this is really consistent with that and underscoring the value of both traditional data and expertise and also recognizing the value of stories and lived experience as data contributing to these initiatives. On that topic of sharing leadership, uh, we were moving towards the next topic, which I believe was on around sharing credit. Is that, is that correct? Uh, can we go a little bit more into that one? Yeah, definitely. So I had mentioned a shift from hoarding or taking credit to sharing credit or credit as shared currency. And this can be tough because many folks in the nonprofit sector know that we are incentivized to have to prove our impact or try to demonstrate our impact of our own work in order to gain funding. And those dynamics exist and that's real. And in particular in the kind of work where collective impact tends to show up on really complex, large-scale challenges, the work of one organization itself can't solve the problem or pursue the work uh, on its own. And so we have to shift towards thinking about our own role in the context of others and sharing credit for the progress as we go. Uh, I've seen groups do this really well by you know, sharing media inquiries and sharing the stage with others in the collaborative. If an inquiry comes to the backbone or to a single partner on something that the collaborative is taking on. I've seen backbone leaders sometimes actually have a policy of saying, I won't field any outside inquiries. I will always lift up members of our partners to do this. I've seen other places where organizations really proactively up front will do joint grant applications and be very clear right up front that we need, we will be sharing credit for the progress. And uh, that's because that's how it should be in working on this issue. And so kind of sharing, uh, creating the structure up front so that they can share credit later on as they go. I've also seen groups do things like how you structure the agenda for your meetings among partners to have different moments of celebrating success so that it, the spotlight's not always shining on one particular person or just on the initiatives. If they, if they have co-chairs, it's not just about the co-chairs always being the kind of first voice in a, in a room. So I think that can go a long way to showing that we're trying to lift up the work and highlight the work of multiple partners. But I like the other ideas you mentioned too, Jen. That's so interesting. And there's probably an interesting call to action in there too for grant makers and funders. Like how can we create our calls for proposals that would even encourage the sharing credit as opposed to hoarding credit? So that's interesting to think about. Great idea. I know. Let's see uh, who jumps in on that. I think the last one that you had mentioned, Jen, was around shifting from just focusing on program level outcomes to moving towards a mindset, a mindset shift of program level outcomes and population level outcomes. That can feel like a little jargony. Is there any way we can speak more about that and what that means? Definitely. So when we talk about program level outcomes, these are the outcomes of the work that is happening in typically or often inside a single organization or maybe a you know, one or two organizations working together. So if you're delivering a specific program, what is it that you're achieving? So that might be in our early childhood collaborative, what are the outcomes of a new teacher ta- training program that we're taking on? But when we're talking about collective impact, we've certainly talked about this in some of our previous podcasts, the scale of the change that partners are coming together to achieve is much broader. And so we are talking about really pursuing change for a 
broad set of the whole community, however your initiative defines the, the geography or population in your community. And so when we're talking about shifting from program level outcomes to population level outcomes, we want to always orient and start by orienting our conversations around what do we want to achieve across the community on this topic? So maybe this is quality and increased quality and access for early childhood. So that program I mentioned already would be one piece, but when you orient around population level outcomes, you're thinking about what are all of the different kinds of solutions that we need to be pursuing if we're really going to see change at a scale that is needed to make a difference across the whole community. And we talked before the key conditions of collective impact and the common agenda being such an important element. And I, I often find that that's a helpful way when you're talking about getting agreement on a common agenda, there should be conversations at both of those levels. What are the programmable outcomes we want to see? But ultimately you're all coming together among a set of partners because you have identified a population level outcome or set of outcomes that you realize you need to work on together. So I think that's a helpful way to get people to think about accountability on two levels, not only the what we're trying to ultimately change, but then what are some of those interim steps that we might have more control over within our own organization. We're looking at four mindset shifts that are really key to the, or that can be key to a success in a collective impact work or a collaborative. Are there any other intangible factors that people should be keeping in mind as they're moving forward? Sure, Tracy. The, a couple of others, we've, we've covered quite a bit on the mindsets and we underscored the importance of relationships and trust building and fostering connections. Another one that, that is important to keep in mind as an intangible for success is around creating a culture of learning. This is one of those topics that we've seen a lot of groups, regardless of what stage they're in, it's really important to do things like create space where you can embrace failure among partners. So that could be, you know, sharing examples of moments when things haven't gone as planned among your partnership and what was learned from that experience or providing concrete resources and sufficient, you know, financial and, and staff capacity to actually support continuous learning, which might mean gathering data, interpreting data, which could be stories from the community or quantitative data from the community. So that's another important and tangible around learning. That's true. And there's a lot of great resources around how to promote learning within a collaborative, which we can link to in our footnotes. But whether it's including time, even within your partnership meetings to talk about like what's coming up for people or even current things in the field that you want to hear from or different stories or how, how your other partners are doing or even others in the field doing similar work and sharing out that out. So to, in order to continue always keeping that culture of learning up. And I think it's, it's always wonderful when we are, have created that safe trusting space where we can be very open about failures. I know that's quite difficult. And if you've never experienced that kind of cultural safety to be able to talk about it, it can be hard to imagine, but I, I can share even just from my own experience, uh, being on a team where you can be open about failure and really learn from it. It's quite, it's quite liberating because it really opens up. It really focuses you to really thinking about, well, how can we do better? Or what can we, how can we improve? And I'm not really hyper-focused on a specific failure in mind. So it's a really great thing to think about and to shoot for as a goal. Tracy, I would just I just wanted to underscore what you and Robert were both saying and point out I think that some of these uh, tangibles or success factors actually are 
they reinforce each other, right? Because it is that building a relationship and culture of trust that is needed to have that psychological safety that you were talking about, where people can not only share their failures, but actually like share data on the, on the uh, work that they're doing so that people can learn from each other. And that is uh, especially even with people outside your organization, a different level of sharing and vulnerability than many of us are accustomed to. Another thing that I've seen groups do is you know, developing a set of norms or agreements for how you're going to engage or how you're going to show up as a, as a group. So having some guiding principles is another thing that can help with fostering learning. It can help with strengthening relationships and just having everyone be on the same page. So that's another thing that I've seen groups not only just develop once, but actually come back to those at the start of every meeting. So things like assuming good intent, respecting others' opinions, we're going to disagree respectfully. There's some good examples that I've seen groups do there. Are there any other factors that you want to share related to those intangibilities? I think beyond the importance of relationships, the importance of learning, some of the things we've talked about, Another one is to be more uh, expansive or broader in how you think about leadership. So leadership is not just someone's formal title. It's not just a, for a limited number of people, but being really mindful about how you identify, develop, cultivate, and in some ways distribute leadership across lots of different people within a collaborative is another important and tangible. Collaboratives that fall apart, one of the reasons they fall apart is that they might have an overly dominant voice or someone who kind of takes all of the air out of the room. So if there are folks around the table who are being thoughtful about multiple pathways for leaders to engage and leaders being much more broad and you could be a leader in your community, but not be leading an organization. And so finding ways that you can identify identify and, and build the capacity and support leaders from lots of different sectors and parts of the community is really important too. So it sounds like we've talked about a lot several factors that can be really helpful when the people are launching, whether their collaborative work or the collective impact initiative, including mental model shifts, building leadership capacity, and building up a culture of continuous learning that including building up a culture that can embrace failure and learn from it. Are there any things like we want to go to the other side of the coin? Are there other pitfalls we want to recommend people to avoid? Like we've already tried to avoid like Supporting credit uh, is one pitfall, but are there others that we'd like to share? Yeah, thanks for that. Certainly, as I said earlier, there's a lot to consider in our principles of practice that we talked about a couple podcasts ago around the importance, you know, pitfalls around not starting with and keeping equity at the center of the work and not meaningfully engaging with community members as part of the work. So I think those are definitely ones. But in addition to some of the things we talk about with the principles of practice, I think there are two things I would mention. So one would be a tendency for some collaboratives to rush through the process of developing a common agenda and kind of bulldoze that planning process without also simultaneously investing in building those relationships with each other. So we talked a little bit about that on this podcast, but without a shared common agenda, it's really hard to anchor the work on anything and keep people engaged and at the table and have clarity of purpose about why we're here together to do work. And then one other thing I would mention is, you know, everyone that is coming to a collective impact table is there representing an organization or as a member of the community. 
And I think for those that are representing organizations, there's a fine line that people have to often walk between representing their organization and of course bringing back the work of the collaborative into their organization that in a way that um, helps their organization pursue the common agenda. But you have to balance that with kind of taking off your organizational hat and seeing the full system and the full picture and what's best for the big picture. So I think a pitfall is when people can't see the full system when they're at the collective impact table and are really there like advocating for their organization's point of view. So that's another pitfall that I would caution is people who are showing up really to advocate for their own organization as opposed to in the spirit of collaboration and being there with the starting point as what's best for this overall effort. So just to add to Jen's comments around pitfalls, there's a few others that I would I would include too. So one is expecting big results too quickly. Sometimes this can happen if you have a funder, for example, that is asking for a collaborative to really accelerate its outcomes and, and really have it happen within a one-year grant cycle, for example. So that would be unrealistic to assume if you've been working for decades to try and reduce disparities and outcomes around literacy rates or childhood obesity rates that within a year, you're going to see a an elimination of those disparities. So to expect big results too quickly is a pitfall. I think if you've set that expectation that we're going to see that happen in a year and then it doesn't happen, you could set people up for for disappointment and then kind of opting out of the collaborative. The flip side is that you don't want to just throw up your hands and say, this is really complex work and it's going to take 20 years and come back and check in 20 years from now. So there needs to be quick wins that you celebrate along the way. So that would be another pitfall is that you're so focused on the long-term change that you actually don't celebrate some of the things that are actually happening in the short term. So that could be, you know, testing out some new way of uh, partnering between school districts and nonprofits around your education collaborative or identifying something new with that workforce development example that I mentioned around ways that you could bring the voice of the resident and the the worker who's been um, unemployed for months into the work and, and actually, you know, try something new with their feedback shaping the, the work. So that's another pitfall is the this balance between long-term and short-term. Either side can be a pitfall. And then lastly, you don't want to have people come to your partnership table and then just go back to doing their day jobs like they would have done if they hadn't spent that time as part of the collaborative. So you want to see that this work of collective impact causes people to think about the problem in new ways, think about the set of actors and the system in new ways. Um, and then they actually do their their work differently and partner differently. So it gets to really changing people's practices to ultimately see see change in your community. You bring up really great points there. Another call to action, especially related to funding and grant making, which is it can be difficult to get to those huge, like big changes in one year. So if your grants are always like one year based grants, it can be difficult to have that fun- that good relationship with your funder if you never feel like you're able to get to that change in the timeline that has been allowed it. So, but to your point too, there's the tension where we can't just say, I'll see you in 20 years after all these big changes have happened. We need those quick wins, which is also super helpful in creating sustainability. So to help people come along and feel good about the progress, those, those quick wins or small wins are really great in, in keeping people feeling like they're on the right track. So even when they do experience some failures that we talked about, they still feel like there's, they're, they're, they're starting to see the light. They can, are feeling good about moving forward year after year. 
And to be to be fair, there is definitely a lot that can be measured as early indicators and progress indicators to those big picture population level goals. And we can share some links to some resources around evaluating collective impact that can give you some uh, like a framework for thinking about what to measure at different points in time. So definitely agree that we can't expect big results too quickly and want to celebrate quick wins. And I will add that there are also other things that we can measure to see if we are heading in the direction of those big picture goals over the long term. Great point. We will include the guide to evaluating collective impact in the footnotes for this episode. So please check that out. Well, Jen, Robert, this was a really great discussion. We went over a lot of points from mindset shifts to sharing credit, building leadership, and things to avoid. So so thankful to be able to talk with you today. Look forward to our next discussion because I know there's definitely some conversations that came out of today, like, you know, for instance, the common agenda and how that can take a while to form all these different directions that we can go into and dive deeper into. So really appreciate it and look forward to those talks. Thank you all. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what was discussed today, we've included information in the footnotes for this episode. You can also find more primers and tools on Collective Impact by visiting our website at collectiveimpactforum.org and specifically checking out the page titled Getting Started. Also, you can stop by our resource library where we are hosting more than 300 free-to-access resources including webinars, tools, and case studies. The intro music for this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. Please stay tuned for our next episode, and if you are interested in joining us for our next in-person learning event, registration is open for our 2020 Collective Impact Convening that will be in Minneapolis this May 6th through 8th, 2020. Thanks for listening, and until next time.